This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For other sermons from Antioch, you can visit the church website at antiochchurchnc.org. Now, let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. Chapter 17 of Genesis is our, is our text this morning. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thank you, David, for reading that difficult passage. I told him, I said, uh, sorry about that, bro, um, but did a great job. Now I get to preach on it. Thank you to Micah for that difficult passage he preached on last week as well. And I know we were all blessed by that. So where are we now? Um, 
We had the Hagar incident last week. Mike had told you about that. And now here we are, 13 years later. Ishmael is 13 years old now. Abram is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. And Isaac, he's not here yet. Missing in action. But Abraham still believes God. Judging from his reaction, though, to God's promise that he and Sarah will have a child together, I think his hope has been reduced at this point to Ishmael. He doesn't still get the whole, the whole picture of him having a child. In fact, he says, God, I'm 100 years old. He's not yet, but he's saying, if, I, if we're going to have a child next year, I'm going to be 100, right? I'm 100 years old. And he laughs. He says, there, Sarah's 90. Uh, oh, Lord, may Ishmael live before you. Lord, I have a son. Yes, thank you. Perhaps that's why God started this passage by giving Abram a new name for himself, for God. Did you see that? This is the first of four names that will be announced on this day. This is a a passage filled with revelation from God. And there are four new names that are given in this passage. We will talk about them one by one. But the first one here, God says to Abram, I am God Almighty. Now this is the first mention of God referring to himself as El Shaddai. When you see El, you know that that means God. And you see a word after it, that means this is a character and attribute of God. Remember when Melchizedek said of God, he said, God Most High. Well, that's El Elyon. That's God Most High. You know other names for God. Jehovah, give me one. Jehovah what? Jireh. God will provide. He's our provider. We like that name, don't we? How about Jehovah Shema? What does that mean? The Lord who is there. Jehovah Shema, I am Jehovah Shema, I am there for you. I am there, ever-present help in time of trouble. And so here we see God referring to himself as El Shaddai. It means God is mighty. God is saying, I am mighty. In fact, it's I am almighty. You know, God, God being mighty is the one, a person who is not mighty needs. Would that be any of us? <laughs> no. we, we need God's might Because we have none, right? It's interesting, when we recognize our own frailty, we give thanks to El Shaddai. We are recognizing that we don't have any strength, but he has all. In fact, I think that's why Job used this name for God more than any other name. In fact, Job uses El Shaddai when he refers to God 31 times. This one who was weak and frail and and diseased and broken down and in despair, he was holding on with all of his might, which was not much, to the one who was El Shaddai, the mighty one, the almighty one. Listen, saints, you know, the way we see God shapes how we live. The way we see God shapes how we think. It shapes how we live. So a fickle God is going to have fickle followers, right? An almighty God is going to have faithful followers who rest and trust in his promises. At least that's what we want to do more and more each day. Him being almighty It calls us to worship him in all that we do, to study his word, to love his name, to love his people, to love the people who don't know him yet because, hey, we know Almighty God. I know you don't know him yet, but let me tell you about El Shaddai, the one who's mightier than the biggest mountain you can imagine. We want to tell others about him because the fields are white under harvest. We serve El Shaddai, the God who can do all things, and he proves that to Abram and Sarah. He says that to the man who still thinks... Okay, you gave me Ishmael, maybe in a way that uh, was not part of your plan. Not maybe. 
but that's okay. I have a son. So he's going to prove to Ishmael, to, to, uh, to Abram, that he's bigger than that. Then God gives two commands here. He basically says, I'm a God Almighty, so walk before me and be blameless. The walk there, the verb there is continuous. And blameless does not mean sinless, right? That lets all, lets all of us off the hook. So what he could have said here is walk before me, folks, at all times in order that you may live a righteous and holy life. Walk before me. Remember, when you see a picture of a shepherd and sheep, a lot of times the sheep are out in front of the shepherd, right? He's controlling them with his presence and with his voice commands, and they're walking ahead of him. And that's what God is saying. Hey, walk before me. I've got my eyes on you. I'm directing you. Walk this way. Don't turn that way. Don't turn to the left or to the right. Walk in this path that I've chosen for you and live a righteous and a holy life. And then he says, walk this way, Abram, and I will multiply you greatly. When Abram heard this, he fell on his face, I think in humility. El Shaddai, the Almighty One, he fell on his face before him. And then Abram is going to hear three things from God. He's going to give him a promise, a sign, and laughter. Let's talk about them in turn. First of all, we have a new name for God, El Shaddai. We have a new name for Abram. God reminds Abram of his covenant. He said, you belong to me. And then he changes his name forever. You will no longer be called Abram, exalted father. Now you will be called Abraham, father of a multitude. There's some irony there, isn't there? Do you get the irony? It's like when you meet a guy named Tiny and he's 6'6 and 285. There's irony. Yeah, I'll call you Tiny, but come on, we get it. So can you imagine, I imagine Abraham, when God says, now you are father of a multitude, he's going, oh, no. I mean, what's that going to be like? I'm walking down the street and people are going, hey, there goes, there goes the father of a multitude, right? <laughs> really? Abraham, you're the father of a multitude? Come on. Well, we know about Isaac, but Abram didn't yet. He really did not understand that he was going to have a son with Sarah. In fact, he didn't understand the number of offspring that he was going to have or that his line represented. ESV Study Bible has a useful chart. If you want to look it up sometime, I just took some of the information of it. He, it says that basically he had four types of offspring. I think two and three are pretty similar. Let's break them down. Number one, he had his natural physical offspring. That included Ishmael, Isaac, and guess what? He's going to have six children with Keturah after Sarah dies years later. Okay, those were natural physical offspring, just like you had natural physical offspring. But then he had the natural and set-aside offspring. Ishmael is not in the set-aside camp. He's not the child of promise. Isaac and all those who are part of the called and elective purpose of God in that seed are a part of those offspring. And then three is very similar. He had promised offspring, the line that continued with Jacob and all the way through David, and culminated in Jesus. All right? And then finally, this is where we fit in. The grafted-in ones. He had spiritual offspring, which includes Jews and Gentiles, me and you, all those who trust in Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. We are the offspring of Abraham. And that's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, who said, hey, we, Abraham was our father. He said, no, if he were your father, you'd believe in the son. Because you don't believe in the son, he's not your father. In other words, he was saying, you're not the offspring of Abraham because you don't believe in the Messiah, the one he sent. He came to his own. His own received him not. 
So Abram, Abraham, Mark, Marcus Dodds writes, Abraham has become one of the best-known names on earth. And to Abraham himself, it quickly acquired a preciousness as God's voice abiding with him. God's promise renewed to him through every man who addressed him. And until at length, the child of promise, lying on his knees, took up his first syllable and uttered the word, Abba, Abba, Father. So God confirms the, the covenant with Abraham. He promises him there's going to be a people. He promises there's going to be a land. And most precious of all, did you catch that in the text? I will be their God. He says, Abraham, not only are you going to be the father of a multitude, I will be their God. Isn't that what every father and every mother in here longs for, for their children and for their grandchildren and for their great-grandchildren? And if we were to live so long for our great-great-grandchildren... And listen, you children in here, look at me. Children, look up. If you're two years old or you're five years old or you're 40 years old, your parents want nothing more than that you follow God, that you also belong to the God who carries your family, your father and your mother. And you can't do that, you know, by proxy. You don't get a proxy vote. You know, you don't get grafted in simply because you have people in your family who are grafted in. You get grafted in by faith through Jesus Christ. Grace through faith alone, which we'll talk about more. So, that leads us to the sign. Now, the sign of the covenant, he's looking worried here, you can tell. The sign of the covenant for Noah was what? Everybody said? Hello? What was it? <laughs> The sign of the covenant for Abraham, you don't have to say it out loud because we heard David read it multiple times, was circumcision. Now, this was not nothing new. This was not something that God came up with just for the Israelites. This was already being practiced by uh, neighboring countries. In fact, it was, it was most prominent with the Egyptians. The Egyptians practiced circumcision, and, and it was just a, a normal thing. You know who didn't practice circumcision? They were considered a barbaric in part because they didn't, were the Philistines. We call people Philistines if they're barbaric and they're archaic you know, and, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and live a life that's below. Well, they didn't practice circumcision. Look, we know now, some of you may not agree with this, that's fine, you can look it up. We know now that there are medical benefits to circumcision, right? You have a less chance of getting cancer, men, if you are circumcised and your wife has a less, lesser decreased chance of getting Cancer from infection that can come from you. But that's not the point here. This was God's brand for his Old Testament followers. This was his brand. We'll talk about that in a second. Derek Kidner says the moral implications would be left unwritten until Sinai. For one was pledged to a master only secondarily to a way of life. This was God saying, hey, this is the reminder for you. Every boy and every man in that covenant community for the rest of his life would be reminded every single day, I belong to God. That's what this was about. I belong to God. It was a visible and a physical sign. Now, the question is, uh, did that procedure then or now save anyone? Everybody said, no. When was righteousness credited to Abraham? After this procedure? Hello? 
No. What did he do to have righteousness credited to him? What did he do? He simply believed. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what gets us in, guys, is nothing we can do. No works, nothing, nothing of the flesh will satisfy the demands of God. Simply faith in the one who satisfied those commands or demands for us. Faith in Jesus. You know, Paul makes that clear in the New Testament. Remember that in the New Testament, there was an uproar among the believers because the Gentiles were believing in Christ. Paul and Barnabas had seen that. And now the question on the table was, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? I mean, should they be circumcised? And so they had the council in Acts 15. This was a turning point for the church. The church absolutely could have died in that day, in that moment, if they had not decided rightly. They said, are we going to make Gentiles become like Jews and be circumcised before they can become followers of Jesus? And Paul and Barnabas are going, no, no, let me tell you what we've seen. We've already seen it. These guys have been saved just like we've been saved. The evidence of salvation, we've seen it in their lives. So the council came out with this proclamation. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, we being the Jews, just as they, the Gentiles, us, will. And that is by grace through faith. If you want to read more about this, Paul writes about this in Romans 2. He writes about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Two other passages, if you want to read more about Paul saying, this is what circumcision is good for. This is not what it's meant for at all. Notice as well the sign of the covenant involved, as Kent Hughes writes, and I think this is interesting, he said it involves Abraham's powers of procreation. The area of life in which he had, with Hagar, resorted to fleshly expediency. I'm going to do this my way and get it done. And had so failed. Man's best plans and strength of will will never bring about the promise. Alan Ross added, impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage. The sign formed a constant reminder for the people to preserve the purity of marriage in order to produce a godly seed. You see, the godly seed mentioned by God in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 17. Okay, if that was the sign of the covenant then, what is the sign of the covenant now? Is it a cutting of the flesh? Everybody said no. It's a cutting of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart. When, when we follow Jesus, we profess faith in Jesus, we repent of our sins, Jesus changes our hearts. We get a new heart. The old heart of stone is removed. Maybe it's not a cutting of the heart. Maybe it's a heart transplant. It's a spiritual heart transplant. And that's why Paul wrote, he said, we are the circumcision who, here's the signs that we've been circumcised in the heart. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, and we put zero confidence in the flesh to bring about any spiritual changes. It's not about the acts of the flesh. It's about the circumcision of the heart. So, so that leads to the question, how do we now identify then, publicly identify with Christ? What are the what, what does a public identification with Christ look like? Well, there are two different schools of thought here, and I think we could accept either one or both. And they have to do with the sacraments. 
Some say, some say baptism has taken the place of circumcision as the outward sign to the covenant community that, hey, I now belong to Christ. When we do a baptism, we did a couple of weeks ago, in the parking lot, in the cattle trough, that's one of the things we say. You're not getting saved today. You're already saved. We wouldn't baptize you if you weren't. You're simply publicly identifying yourself as part of the covenant community by being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That's one, one side. Others say, no, it's, it's the Lord's Supper. I like the Lord's Supper. Okay, you can, you, know, you can look at either one. But when we take the elements, they represent the body and the blood of Christ. Be careful, Roman Catholics, they are not the body and the blood of Christ. Be careful, Lutherans, they don't become the body and the blood of Christ. They're simply symbols of what Jesus did on the cross when he gave his life blood for us. And remember, Jesus said... This cup is the what? The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So I like that. That when we take communion once a month, we just have baptisms maybe once a year, but when we take communion every month, we are publicly identifying ourselves as covenant people. We're taking that cup and saying, I identify with this blood covenant that was cut for me through the sacrifice of the precious Son of God. And I'm publicly identifying myself with Him. But listen, be careful. Neither the sacrament of baptism nor the sacrament of communion, another way we depart from Roman Catholicism, uh, the sacrament of communion cannot, will not save you. The only way we're saved is by grace through faith, and only grace through faith. A friend of mine, I was with a friend of mine in Kansas recently, last, when we were there last week, and, and he came out of a Catholic background, and he said he was arguing with this friend of his who had left the, the Protestant church and went over to the Catholic, and he was trying to you know, argue to my friend to convert this pastor friend of mine to Catholicism. And, and finally... This, this guy who had gone over to the Catholicism, he said, look, if you, could just, if you could just lay aside sola scriptura, then you could get there. And my friend said, that's exactly right. And that's why I won't ever get there. Because you have to take this and lay it aside to buy into and believe into the Catholic religion. Now, am I saying that Catholics can't be saved? No, I'm not going to say that. So don't send me an email. But if you practice the sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross every single week, literally taking the blood and, and flesh into yourself, there's, there's just a whole lot there we could talk about uh, that I'm going to get off, off base and say something I shouldn't. Now, at the end of this chapter, we see that Abraham obeyed God that very day. Did you see that? That same day, every male from the oldest, probably Abraham, right, down to the eight-year-old baby boy were circumcised. They were all circumcised. I like what Derek Kidner says about this. He says, you know, in the sense that Pentecost was the birthday of the church in the New Testament, this was the birthday of the church, the covenant community, in the Old Testament. This was the day when the covenant community said, okay, we're obeying God in this and we are becoming part of the covenant community. And, and God even said, if, if someone comes in who will not be circumcised, then he cannot be a part of the community. And this was for 
uh, the Jews. This was for those, those slaves that were part of that community. We're not going to talk about slavery. Uh, but th- this was a part of every, every male in that community to, to identify with God, with El Shaddai, had to practice this, experience this. This leads us to the final point. This is my favorite, laughter. You know, if there's anyone in the universe who enjoys laughter, it is God. <laughs> you know how I know that God enjoys laughter? Not because the Bible tells us he laughs. He do, it does. He's usually laughing at the sinners who think that they can rebel against him. But how do we know that God's enjoy, God enjoys laughter? Because we enjoy laughter. And we were created in the image of God. You know, the Bible says some interesting things about laughter. And I would say the person who cannot laugh, seriously, the person who cannot laugh needs to be prayed for and delivered into holy hilarity. Let's make every effort to help that person who cannot laugh and enjoy it uh, to be delivered. The Bible says laughter is good for you. A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. That's Proverbs 17, 22, if you can't see that text. It's said of the Proverbs 31 woman, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Now, she doesn't laugh because she doesn't have good sense, you know, because she doesn't, doesn't care about what calamity might be coming. She laughs because she's done what she needs to do. She's prepared, but she knows ultimately it is El Shaddai who is going to take care of her and her family. And so she laughs. You know, right, we're living in difficult times. I heard a great sermon last Sunday when I was in Kansas. Hannah's pastor preached, and he was talking about Daniel. And at the end of Daniel, you know, God says to Daniel, you know, you're, you're going to die. You're gonna, it's, it's like when God said to Abraham, you're going to live to a good old age, and then you're going to die in peace. And the pastor made the point. He says, listen, us old people, we're not going to have to deal with some of the stuff we see coming up in society. It's not for us. We simply are going to die and go on and, and be with the Lord, and that's going to be your problem. And that's what God said to Daniel. And I remember my great-grandmother when I was 15 years old in 1972 saying, Mark, this world is so bad, is so evil, I don't know how you young people are going to stand it. Has anybody ever heard an old person say that? Raise your hand. Anybody old in here said that yourself? Raise your hand. Yes! Every generation when they get to my age or older starts saying that. I'm, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's no hope. And there isn't except for Jesus. But the good news is that we're not going to have to deal with the future problems that we can't even imagine. We worry about things most of the time that never even happen. Getting off the point here, let's learn to laugh at the future. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher, but also he was quite a character. If you read anything about Spurgeon, you know how crazy he was. Some of the preachers in in London got together to try to convince him that you uh, you need to stop introducing humor into your sermons. And Spurgeon said, if only you knew how much I hold back, you would commend me. And then he says, this preacher thinks it less a crime to cause a momentary laughter than a half hour of profound slumber. (laughs) Amen. Did that wake anybody up? When Isaac is born in chapter 21, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You know, I suspect, and I can't say this for a fact, but I suspect 
that the last 13 years of Sarah's life, there hadn't been a whole lot of laughter. What do you think? You think she laughed a lot? You think she enjoyed those 13 years? I'm not thinking she did that much. And so when this comes, when this promised child comes, God changes all of that. Then he changes her name from Sarai to Sarah. Just take the I off and add an H, and then it's Sarah. They both mean the same thing. They both mean princess. And ladies and girls, you can't be a princess unless you have a king. And the Lord, the king, says twice in this passage, I will bless her. Three times he tells Abraham that Sarah will have a son. I will give you a son by her, he says. God says that. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't stutter. I will give you, Abraham, a son by her, your 90-year-old 90, uh, wife. Abraham laughs and says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God says, No, but Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, the fourth name. I told you there are four new names here. First one, El Shaddai. Second one, Abraham. Third one, Sarah. And now, Isaac which, as you know, means laughter. Isaac, God's, God's got a sense of humor, doesn't he? Oh, you like that? You're laughing about the Abraham. Later, Sarah's going to laugh in the tent when she hears the angels say, yeah, your wife's going to have it. She's going to laugh. You laugh. No, I did not laugh. And so God says, hey, way ahead of time, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him laughter. No book you know, book of names needed. You don't have to comb through the name book, right? No gender party reveal. We don't have to mess with that nonsense. You're going to have a boy. And by the way, he's going to be either male or female. And I've chosen for your son to be male, <laughs> right? As God chooses all sons to be male. He's going he's to be a male and he's going to be named Isaac. The promised son is on his way. Now look, guys, Abraham has already believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. But I think, I think, I think at this moment, at this moment, Abraham understood for the first time. I, I think Abraham understood. God's, God's serious. I mean, this is really going to happen. I'm going to be 100 by the time this child is born. My wife is going to be 91 by the time this child is born. But he's saying, he's really saying... We're going to have a baby. The two of us, old people. It's going to happen. He understands for the first time. But here's the thing. He's already believed God, but understanding deepens his faith. Be careful that we don't... Remember, we've talked about this. Don't put understanding before faith. Don't say, well, I'll believe when I understand. When I understand everything about God and everything about the mystery of the gospel, everything about the word, when I understand all the stuff that I can't understand then I will believe. That's not the way it works, folks. You believe yourself into understanding. You believe in God, and then he opens up. It's like you have glaucoma, and then he opens up your vision, the peripheral vision and everything else for you to see. Oh, now I understand who God is better. I'll never understand fully, but I understand him better. I understand his promises better because I believed first. I like Ian Dugwood. I have no idea how he says his name, but he says, you know, 
Many people approach God as if they're interviewing him for a job position for personal deity of my life. Hey, God, you want to be the, you'll be the man of the sky, in the sky, fit the job description? Well, you need to be non-judgmental, God. I don't, I don't want to judgmental. You need to be accepting of me, and you need to allow me to determine what is right or wrong. Okay, are we good with that? If so, then lucky God, he gets to be your personal deity. Not the way it works, is it, folks? Not the way it works. And that's not what Abraham does here. He goes that very day and he obeys God. Maybe he didn't understand this whole foreskin, you know, cutting the flesh, all that. Maybe he didn't understand it one little bit, but he said, I'm going to do what God's told me to do, and I'm going to let him decide what's right and wrong. And he believed God again, and again it was credited to him as righteousness. What do we take from this passage and apply to our lives? Four things. Number one, three things. God is almighty. Nothing defeats his power, nothing delays his promise, nothing denies his purpose. Nothing. Absolutely zero. Number two, we are called to a sanctified and believing life. We do, don't do that by works of the flesh. We do that by the Spirit, by faith, and faith produces good works. And it's our faith that results in obedience that pleases God. We all want to please God, don't we? Well, know this. Number one, you are pleasing in his sight. Because of your position in Christ. You have positional righteousness that is perfect in Christ. Everybody understand that? Read Ephesians 1 again if you don't. But we also want practical righteousness. We want to walk, it, walk before him in a righteous and godly life. Listening to him. Obeying him. Being quick to confess when we mess, mess up. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Abraham. Uh, we get, finally get to call him Abraham. We're thankful for his, uh, his life filled with amazing twists and turns, uh, Lord, just as ours are. Thankful that he was a man of flesh just as we are people of flesh, that he was not perfect, neither are we. Thankful that he didn't understand, but he believed, and so can we. Thankful that you love him, and from him um, came your son, whom we love and now can be part of your covenant family. Continue to knit us together, to knit us closer to one another, but also closer to you as we practice uh, your righteousness day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Mark Fox of Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. Antioch meets every Sunday for worship at 10 o'clock a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon. You can download other messages by Pastor Fox at antiochchurch.cc. You can also learn how to order his books or subscribe to his blog at jmarkfox.com.